Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, this is Jay calling you from central Pennsylvania. I'm about to open up Civilized to Death, and I'm excited to break that book open of yours, so thanks for that. Uh, it's a crazy world out there these days, but uh, it's not too hard to find the beautiful places. Just got to look a little harder. Best to all out there. Thanks for what you're doing. Hey, Chris. I just stayed on a boat in Newport, Oregon with this guy, and I thought of you because I listened to your Roma the other day. It was from way back in 2017, I think, where you told this 19-year-old kid, don't be afraid to vomit. If you're traveling, you just got to treat your elementary canal like it's outside your body. Anything can just pass through you. So I love it. I agree. But then I'm on this boat with this guy, and it has a toilet, but it's not really in use. And for 20 hours, he never acknowledged the fact that maybe I needed to pee. What if I needed to poop? He never asked. He never offered. I had to sneak out in the middle of the night while he was sleeping and pee off the side of the boat. So yes, I agree. Don't be afraid to puke. Don't be afraid to poop. But we as humans all need to interact and acknowledge the fact that maybe this is something that should be more accessible to me if I'm staying with a guy on his boat for a night. What do you think? What do I think? Uh, do women poop? Really? I'm just kidding. Uh, I think uh, I think that guy doesn't deserve to have you on his boat again. That's what I think. Uh, and I also wonder why you didn't say something to him about it. Come on now. We're all in this together. We need to learn. So I don't know. I, I obviously am coming down on different sides there. On the one hand, I think... Come on, if you're living on a boat, uh, you have to sort of anticipate that other people might not know where everything is and how things work. I certainly consider that uh, when I have a guest in my van. you know, got to explain how things function, uh, and that includes bodily functions, functioning. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, hey, we're all adults here. If you got to take a dump, you got to be able to say, hey, where do I take a dump? Uh, so yeah, like most things, I, I, I think that it's very important to be able to talk about it openly and not to get all somber here. Cause I know that's kind of a humorous snippet that you sent me. Um, but I do think that, you know, I often say, if you can't talk about sex, you shouldn't be having it. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that applies to kids, but it applies sadly to adults as well. I think there's so many adults who find it easier to have sex than to talk about it. And uh, that's why I think we need shame exorcists in the world. And uh, I try to say things on this podcast that maybe gross people out or annoy them or... Uh, Whatever, but I, I kind of feel like it's um, a responsibility to get stuff out there, and um, 
you know, show that it's possible to talk about things and nothing bad happens to you. Uh, which reminds me, I just listened to a podcast the other day that was very moving. Um, I'm biased because it was um, <clears throat> a podcast uh, by my friend Anya Katz, who I'm, uh, I have great affection for. And uh, it's called You Can't Rush Healing. It's on her podcast, um, the, A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I've mentioned it uh, several times before on this and it's about her health issues. And um, it's an, an example of exactly what I'm talking about. It's someone who's talking about something very vulnerable, um, very painful, um, potentially embarrassing. And um, by talking about it openly, she's trying to help other people to talk about their situations openly and to... Um, to confront them without the added weight of shame and uh, humiliation and all those unnecessary weights that we're carrying around. It's bad enough, the stuff we have to deal with in life. We shouldn't have to compound the difficulty with these unnecessary added weights that society um, applies to us. So I encourage you to check that out. A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World and the specific episode I'm talking about that I just listened to yesterday is called You Can't Rush Healing. All right, a lot going on, a lot to tell you about. This episode is interesting because uh, there's a tension on this podcast sometimes between guests who are famous, which... Um, you know, that's very useful because it brings in added audience. Uh, you know, their fans might listen to the podcast and enjoy it and stick around and listen to more episodes. So it's always good when you have someone, you know, a Joe Rogan or a Duncan Trussell or uh, Neil Brennan or you know, famous author Andy Weil, Gabor Mate. You know, these kinds of people bring in um, new audience. So that's great. Uh, and anyone who happens to be listening to this because you're a fan of this particular guest, well, you're welcome. Good, good to have you here. Hope you stick around. Um, but on the other hand, I really generally, um, it's not that I prefer people who aren't famous in any sort of, uh, you know, judgmental existential way. It's just that I, you know, I feel like famous people have, access to platforms. Famous people are accustomed to talking about themselves, telling their story. You know, they know how to play media. They know, they, they know how this stuff works. Um, and so there's something to me that feels more exciting about, um, sort of discovering a person as we're talking and, uh, not knowing anything about them going into it. And then by the end of the conversation, feeling like I know I've gotten to know someone a little bit and you've been along with me for that ride. You know, we're not recreating it for you or I'm not looking for some fresh angle that hasn't been covered in 500 previous interviews or whatever. Um, this episode is kind of a combination of those things where uh, the people, uh, particularly one of the, it's a couple, John, John and Cassie Walker. I should just tell you who they are. Um, John was in a band called Panic at the Disco, uh, playing huge 30, 40,000 
capacity stadiums, arenas, uh, on Saturday Night Live, um, you know, all, all the covered all those bases. I had never heard of Panic at the Disco. I had no idea who they were. Um, and uh, still, I couldn't name you a single song <laughs> by them. So it's this perfect combination of someone who is famous, um, but not to me. So it's uh, it was a really enjoyable conversation. Um, his wife, Cassie, wrote a book about largely about the experience of stepping away from fame. So she and John have been together since high school, and they basically live the American dream. Uh, you know, John joined this band. The band blew up. Uh, lots of money, lots of attention, all those things that we're all running around, or most people are running around trying to get their hands on. Well, they had their hands on it at a very young age. I think he said he was 19, 20 something when the band really hit. Um, and then for various reasons that, uh, that he'll explain, he decided, I guess they decided together to walk away from it. And they went to Costa Rica and um, just sort of stepped away with a dog and a couple of cats and reconsidered life. What's it mean? What's valuable? Um, how do we go forward from here? So it's, a, it's an interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I suspect you will as well. A couple things to tell you. Just First of all, I want to apologize for the lack of consistency of late with this podcast. I've been super busy with the book launch and uh, doing two, three, four, sometimes more interviews per day. Um, and it's hard for me to find not just time, but the, the juice to, to come and talk to you and, and sort of tell you what's going on. Um, I feel like I'm talk, talking too much, listening to myself talk too much. And, um, but I, I suspect things will start slipping back into a nice rhythm quite soon. Uh, the motherfucker awards are coming up soon. A couple of weeks. If you're interested in joining us for that crazy evening here in Los Angeles at the Miracle Theater, go to the motherfuckerawards.com, get tickets and come see us there. It's uh, the the theater, I think, only holds 350, maybe 400 people. Not huge. Um, so it's a pretty intimate evening, but man, it's wild. It's fun. Great crowd. So if you're going to be in L.A. and you want to do that, make sure you get a ticket. I think I don't know how many are available, but I know it's not sold out yet. So jump on that. Um, if you're a subscriber on my website, uh, which you can be for as little as two bucks a month, um, you get access to all the eBooks. That includes tangentially reading the first one that came out, uh, a new one we've just put up, um, tangentially talking drugs. I think it's called, or free, I was afraid if it's drugs or consciousness, but uh, it's a selection of conversations with people like Gabor Mate and um, uh, Carl Hart and, and various, uh, I think Rick Doblin's in that one, um, various experts on psychedelics and consciousness. And there's another one coming out uh, within a week or two, I think, uh, tangentially talking sex. That's with Angela White, um, Jana Vrangalova, 
uh, Wednesday Martin and some other people where we're talking about sexuality. So those are available for nothing. If you're a subscriber at uh, chrisryanphd.com, thatchrisryan.com, tangentiallyspeaking.com, it's all the same website. Um, so that's a good value if you're into ebooks. And uh, here's another little bonus for subscribers. We printed up these um, uh, Vanthropology t-shirts a while ago. And the printers at Sure Design t-shirts, they something went wrong. And we ended up with a box of women's white tank top uh, style shirts where the image of me in the van got um, sort of flipped around. So I'm black. So these, <laughs> and they, when we saw this mistake, they were like, well, you know, there's no sense in sending them back, just throw them away or do whatever you want to do with them. And, um, I thought, well, wouldn't that be like a great collector's item? You know, I'll probably get in trouble because I, I don't know. Does this count as being in blackface? I don't know. But since it's Halloween season and, you know, people are getting in trouble for having the wrong color on their face or whatever, I thought it would be kind of a nice little bonus thing. So if you are a subscriber at the website and you would like a white woman's tank top with the image of me um, as a black person driving a van, uh, we're giving those away for free. All you have to do is pay shipping, which I think is, you know, in the U S it's a few bucks. Um, but if you're somewhere else, if you're in Australia and you want one, you just pay whatever the shipping is to Australia and you can have it. You can have as many as you want. I don't know how many there are, but, um, send us a, a an email through the website. Uh, I think there's a contact form there you can use, uh, and just uh, tell us what size you are and your address and how many you want. And we'll send them to you at our expense, which is just uh, at our cost, which is just the shipping. So you can have that special um, collector's item there. Yeah. Okay. So what else I want to tell you? I'm on my way. Uh, as, soon, as soon as I finish this, I'm going to Beverly Hills to record a forked up I think it's called Forked Up, which is a Thug Kitchen podcast. You may know of this. Apparently, it's quite popular. I'm going to be talking about Civilized to Death and cooking, I guess. I'm, yeah, we'll see how that goes. All right. Um, if you follow me on social media, you will have seen that my buddy Oliver and I just applied Bedliner, which is this sort of rubberized paint textured stuff to uh, Scarlett Johansson because she had sort of an aesthetic issue where the uh, true coat was peeling away and I was starting to get some rust spots and so since I had to replace the engine this summer uh, as you may know because of some sort of bearing failure uh, I decided I really want to take care of the body because essentially what I have now is a new van that's was built in 2006. So, uh, don't want to have it rusting away while I've got a brand new engine in there. So anyway, Oliver and I spent the weekend spraying this stuff on. It's really, it's really cool. I love it. It's, it's, I don't know. It's, I love the texture of it. 
Um, so that's what I've been up to. You can see the videos of that. I posted them on Instagram. I'll post some, some photos. Um, that's what I've been up to. And uh, as soon as the Motherfucker Awards are over, I guess in mid-December, I'm going to be heading off to Hawaii for a couple of weeks. Or a week, I guess, in Hawaii and Maui. And then heading to Southeast Asia. So if you're in Thailand or Laos, maybe I'll see you there this winter. I'll be taking the podcast on the road. So you'll be hearing from travelers and expats and various uh, interesting characters who are living in Southeast Asia for a while. Then I think uh, I'll go to Europe from there, spend a month, maybe March in Spain and Holland, visiting friends there and catching up and then back to L.A. in late April. So that's sort of my schedule for the next few months. Uh, All right, that's it. Uh, One other thing I wanted to mention is that um, my buddy Tal Ruspoli, uh, his film Monogamish, is available on iTunes and Amazon Prime. Uh, I'm in that film, as are my mom and dad, which is uh, interesting, there at the end, Um, uh, as well as Dan Savage, Esther Perel, uh, all sorts of interesting people commenting and and discussing these questions around monogamy and intimacy and relationships. And the way my parents got into it was I, you know, I became friends with Tao after uh, filming the interview for the film. And I put him in touch with Dan Savage and and I don't remember some other people because, you know, I just really liked what he was doing and I wanted to help him out. And at one point I said, is there anyone else I can introduce you to? And he said, you know, I think I'm covered on the people who sort of see the challenges and have articulated the difficulties of monogamy. What I'd really like is someone who could speak to the advantages, you know, the other side, like what's great about monogamy. And I sort of laughed and said, oh, you should talk to my parents. They've been married 50 some years. And he said, really, could I? And I thought, well, my my parents aren't like media people. They're not, you know, accustomed to being careful what they say on camera. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously I trust Tao and I knew he wouldn't do anything to hurt them or anything. And so I went to my parents and I said, well, look, this friend of mine is making this movie and you guys have been happy together. And do you think, would you be willing to talk about it? And they said, well, if he's your friend and you trust him, sure. So Tao went over to their house and, uh, and recorded an interview with them. So it's very moving to me to to see them there, especially my dad, you know, not since he died a little over a year ago. It's just interesting um, feeling to to see him, the, how familiar it is and yet distant at the same time. Um, okay, I think that's about enough for me. Let me get into this conversation with uh, Cassie and John Walker, really another beautiful couple who... Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know how monogamous they are, but they're certainly, I, mean, I don't know anything about their relationship, um, but they certainly seem very happy together and they've been together since high school as had, uh, you know, my parents met when my mom was in high school. And I think my dad was a freshman in college. So yeah, 
Yeah, that's uh, another way to go about things. And there are advantages and disadvantages to whatever you choose to do, as long as you're open and honest about it and can talk about it as, uh, you know, whether it's about pooping off the side of a boat or uh, whatever challenges you face in your relationship, I hope you won't be afraid to raise the issue. All right, I'm going to play you out uh, with a song uh, by John Walker. It's called Everyone But You. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks for listening to the podcast and supporting it in whatever way is possible for you, financial or just sending out good vibes. Thank you. Bye. A part of you left the room. I am left talking to the apple. She comes to me, but when I dream, I'm tired of counting sheep to see her. I sleep because I need her And everybody knows it but you The wedding ring is just a thing That weighs you down and occupies your finger I know it sounds a little down But love is all I'm really after She comes to me when I dream I'm tired of counting sheep to see I sleep because I need her And everybody knows it but you All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm in Topanga, California with John and Cassie. John and Cassie, what are your last names? Walker, W-A-L-K-E-R. And do you have the same last name? Have have you done that? 
Yes. Was that did. was that like a question when you got married whether you're going to do that traditional thing or not? Actually, it was a little bit for me um, because I like my generation is all girls uh, and I was the youngest. So mm. my maiden name kind of died out with me a little bit. Oh, um, right. What which, is your maiden name? My maiden name is Vandenboom. Vandenboom. <laughs> which is Very why dark. I did actually change it up for Walker because <laughs> people spell it much better now. Um, Vandenboom. What, what's boom simple. in Dutch? It means of the trees. Oh, boom, baum in German right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah of the trees that's nice one of my best buddies is Martin van Dijvendijk which means um, van Dijvendijk means pigeon on the dike yeah that's pretty Dutch and his father is a world famous dike expert sure yeah talking about (laughs) dams not No, no LGBT issues going on there. Uh, yeah, he's when I met him, it's like his dad was working around the world for the World Bank, um, diverting rivers in Bangladesh and shit because he's this dike engineer. And his sister was working at the uh, Rembrandt Museum, like dressed up in wooden shoes and the traditional clothing from the 1600s and all that. I'm like, dude, could you be more Dutch, you know? So do you speak Dutch? Or are you not at all? You look no. Dutch. Thank you. You've got um, those <laughs> piercing blue eyes, and right. yeah, um, yeah. No, we're pretty far removed from it. We were uh, born in the Midwest. Yeah. 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 Where? What part? Uh, right outside of Chicago. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you're Midwesterners. Yeah, we only moved out here uh, to California like four four years ago. Uh-huh. So yeah, it's. Uh, I actually lived up here in Topanga for a bit. Oh really? Yeah, I was working on an album. Um, Probably for like five, six months. It's a good place for musicians. It was cool, a lot yeah. of history up here. Yeah, we would uh, good vibe. We would, we would go eat at Froggy's. I don't know uh, if that's still here. It's the buildings there, but okay. I think it shut down. Yeah, yeah that and uh, Cholada, which is right down by the beach. Right. Like yeah, the Thai our, place. Those are our spots. Last time I was there, uh, the Edge was at the next table. The Edge at Cholada. The Edge uh, from from the U two yeah at at Chilada. at Chilada, yeah 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 I thought you said Ed Chilada. I was like no <laughs> I don't know Ed Chilada. who's Ed Who? sounds Mexican ima- it's hard to imagine the Edge being out anywhere yeah why well, didn't I I think I was actually with Neil Strauss who we were just talking about uh, and he said oh that's the Edge and I was like eh. Do you, do you call him the Edge, or do you say, "Hey, Edge"? You Mr. know, Mr. Edge. Mr. Edge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ed. You know. Yeah. What's his name? What do you? I didn't say anything to him. No. I. I just d- got his autograph. Didn't even do that. <laughs> just took a selfie. You know, like right. pretend. No, I didn't. I, I was super cool about it. I was like, Yeah. I mean, what are you I don't care. To do, really. You know. Yeah. Did you have you heard me? You mentioned that you listen to the podcast sometimes. Did you hear my story about meeting Peter Gabriel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a while since I told it. Play that cool. I'll tell it briefly. I was at TED. I was giving a TED talk, and there was a thing where they, like everyone who was there, like the per- performers or whatever who were going to be on stage, they got us all together to sort of the first day, like, okay, here's what's going to happen. Here's how you do this, and here's your ticket for that or whatever like an orientation thing. And I, it turned out I was sitting next to Peter Gabriel. Right. And if there's one living musician like that, I admire more than any other, it's Peter Gabriel. I mean, I love his music. I love his, the way he thinks. I love the fact that he 
basically brought the concept of world music into existence. I love how he is so attentive to and respectful of the, the musicians that he brings in. Like he did this, I read an interview with him a long time ago where someone asked him what his favorite piece of music that or his project that he had done was. And he said it was the soundtrack to the last temptation of Christ. It's called, uh, I think it's called passion. Um, so I immediately went out and bought it. And then I saw right next to it was another CD called passion sources. And so the passion is the music that he wrote that he's playing with all these musicians from North Africa. Passion sources is under his real world uh, label. It's those um, musicians playing their own stuff. So yes. And so he uses his fame to bring people up, you know, I just think it's so fucking cool. He's so thoughtful. Anyway, so I'm sitting next to him and I'm like, I, you know, I think like people who are super famous, they have to deal with this bullshit all the time. Like, oh my God, I love you. You sign this and do that. And so I'm like, I'm just going to honor him by treating him like a normal person who I just happen to be sitting next to. And so we start chatting and it turns like, I know a guy who played drums for him where with him in like the first band out of high school and then basically the it was one of those situations where a manager was like hey guys you could go somewhere but you gotta lose the drummer and so that's the drummer <laughs> poor guy yeah i know <laughs> so we talked about him for a while and uh you know i just chatted about like oh we're you know what's he and he had remarried recently and he had a young kid and blah 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 and anyway it was like fine it was great but i could sense that after a few minutes he was starting to get uncomfortable and i but by that point i was already committed to the we're just a couple of dudes you know (laughs) strategy and but he was playing it so cool i was playing it so cool and he was getting more and more uncomfortable and i was i was like ah and i couldn't think because i was just like trying to keep it together anyway i won't go into all the details but I realized later, like I I couldn't figure out like, why was he getting so uncomfortable? And it got to the point where we got up to do the group photo and he was sort of in front of me and he sort of turned around. Like, is that fucking dude still around here somewhere? Like I could see, he was just like, yeah, I got to get away from that guy. And I, I felt weird. Cause I was like, I'm being as unimposing as I can possibly be. Anyway, it really bothered me. And I told the story on the podcast a couple of times, kind of hoping it would filter out to him that, like, I wasn't trying to be weird. And finally, somebody wrote to me and they're like, look, Chris, the reason he got weirded out is that you weren't being authentic. Right. You were being fake authentic. And it's absolutely true. I was playing. You could play it cool, but. Your vibes tell a different story. Exactly. And I was being insincere. And what I should have done was just said, dude, I don't want to impose on you, but your music's made my life better. Yeah. Like, if that's enough. hang out, here's my number. The, it at that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure he didn't want to hang out. But even, just, but even just acknowledging that I know who you are, your life has been enriching to me personally. I'm not going to tell you every time I've seen you in concert. I'm not going to tell you every woman I've had sex with while your record was playing. I'm not going to get into all the details, but 
to just acknowledge that you've touched my life in a way, I think not doing that was bullshit. Yeah, that's, that's a tricky one. Up. I mean, because your instinct is correct. You want to give him his space, and I'm sure how many people profess their love to him on a daily basis. Right. You know? Yeah. It is hard. I feel like as as a musician who had success young and have having met people who we should say by the way you were in a band called panic at the disco which a lot of people listening to this are going what holy shit that's right i was right. in panic at the disco uh it from uh from 2006 to 2009 okay so about 10 years ago. And was it a big band at that time uh i i joined right as they were taking off and then yeah that three years was like their first run of uh yeah, it was it was it was pretty big. What kind of audience sizes were you playing to? Uh, I mean, it was we were we were probably one of the biggest touring bands around at that time. Um, so we were selling out arenas. Wow! And uh, traveling the world, like and, twenty, thirty thousand people. Yeah, in some places. <sighs> That's um, crazy. It was it was crazy. I was the oldest member in the band. I was twenty years old. <laughs> so is this like a boy band? Uh, it kind of felt like that at, at times. Yeah. Um, it wasn't. They were. They wrote their own. Because I'm not doing a Peter Gabriel thing on sure. you right now, but I'd never heard of Got the it. band. Appreciate Don't it. know any of your songs. I'm just going to treat you like a normal yeah, person. Great. Okay, is that all right? That's fine. Yeah. All right. Good. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, not going to weird you out. No, not at all. Well, the point I was going to say before is that I feel sympathetic because it is a little dehumanizing when people. It is so one-sided. And I'm sure right. you get this with the podcast too. People yeah. know you yeah. so well. Yeah. And you don't know them at all. So it's this unbalanced relationship. Yeah, I get it now. But I also, at that time, I, I don't even know if I had the podcast at sure. that point. Um, I'd had, obviously, Sex at Dawn was out, and I'd had a lot of people telling me, this book's changed my life. And so I'd had some of that energy coming toward me, um, but not enough that it became annoying. Right, you welcomed it. It's fucking great. <laughs> yeah, I'm so honored to, the, you know, that... The, the, whatever I'm doing touches anyone in any way. And I think musicians are too. Uh, the other point I was going to make is that most of the best musicians are horrible communicators. It's almost why you have to communicate through music, which right. is what makes it so good. Right. But then you're kind of lost at sea when you're interacting with people personally, especially when they're dissecting your work in front of you. Right. It, it can be a little straining, but yeah, it also feels great. So obviously you want to, touch people's lives there's kind of a you're touching on a i feel like a central conundrum of our society um that many times how do you say this it's like it's like there are these um like great talent or achievement comes from distortion right like you're really bad at dealing with people and girls make you crazy. So you sit in your room and learn to play guitar really, really well. So you can impress some girls. And I mean, like every biography I've ever read of like famous musicians starts with like, that's the reason. Yeah. I didn't know how to deal with girls. So I learned this. Yeah. yeah. Universally. Right. <laughs> you know, or like Joe Rogan got beat up a lot when he was a kid. So he learned martial arts and, you know, became Joe Rogan. So nobody's beating him up anymore. There's all this sort of like, like this compensate compensatory thing or you know you have you feel powerless or you're poor so you make a lot of money to impress women or to show your dad or there's always this sort of and i think it's evolutionary wound. right i mean the fact that you can produce or provide like that's pretty core 
to our existence. Yeah, but I feel like we live in a society where people who are wounded become our role models. And so we're chasing after something that doesn't exist because we're chasing, like we're following people who are trying to overcome something by turning their attention away from it and, and, you know, striving for excellence in, in some area. Um, and it's a strange thing because it's like what they produce is amazing, but then you look at the pain that underlies it and you wonder like, you know, for example, I, I spent a lot of time in Spain, as you know, right. And I considered moving back there a few years ago and went back and I was hanging out and I came to the conclusion that it would be really hard to do the podcast there, um, largely because of English, right? Um, and I don't like doing it remotely. But also because Spanish culture is so balanced and friendly and happy and healthy that it doesn't produce a lot of really interesting people. Right. It produces happy people well, you just, who aren't that interesting. Yeah, the last guest uh, that you had in your podcast, the guy who spent a week in the dark. Akshay. Right. Yeah. That was his point, right? Is that struggle. The struggle yeah, is what fear. produces the, and I mean, that's obviously true. The question is, Seems is, to it, be. is it worth it? <laughs> that is the question. And then there's the larger question of what direction does it lead society when the people we emulate are people who are often very troubled. Um, you know, I think of Michael Jackson, the king of pop. He was like the most wounded, fucked up, freaked out, guy ever right and yet he's the hero he's who everyone wants to be that's pretty weird maybe Whereas, not anymore not anymore <laughs> but also i mean like you know the it's and like that, i don't think anybody would really want to be him if they knew what it was actually like to be him. well that's the thing right and yet they don't so they just see this yeah. it's this carrot dangling in front that keeps them struggling and fighting and working and whatever but like it seems to me like the healthiest people are the ones we never hear of because they don't need the attention. They don't put in, you know, they're getting laid when they're 15. So I don't need to learn guitar. It's kind of like if you didn't post it on Instagram, did it even happen? <laughs> exactly. It's a lot of this striving for yeah. attention. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, that's, yeah. What, what, what do we want? You know? Well, and this gets to the book, right? Well, and gets to your book too. Congratulations, by the way. Thank it you. just came out. Thank you. Yeah. Civilized. Uh, so we have a few books here on the table. Uh, Everything is Moving by Cassie Walker. Can I just read the back, what it's about? Sure, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, seeking refuge from an overwhelming society, Cassie and John rid themselves of all non-essential possessions and relocated to the edge of the earth with their dog and two cats. That's nice that you didn't decide the dog and two cats were unnecessary possessions. <laughs> no, they were coming with. Yeah, we were stuck. They <laughs> came with you. Everything is Moving, the debut narrative from Cassie Walker, chronicles the experience of trying to live consciously while being out of one's element and quite possibly out of one's mind. Travel into the depths of the jungle through time and within Cassie's imagination to wonder about love, work, and coming of age in the 21st century. That sounds great. Thank there you. you. There it is. So where did you go? What what happened, first of all? How did this all... Because you're talking about you're in this band 2006 right. to nine. Yeah, that's right. Three so, uh, years. I was, I was in the band. Um, the band kind of split up abruptly. Uh, mm. it, was, it was 
for many complicated reasons, uh, mostly burnout. And how many people are in the band? There was four people in the band. Uh, me and the, the guitar guitar player left the band, um, started a new band, which kind of ended before it started because mm. a lot of the problems kind of carried over into that project. Uh, were you writing songs? Yes. Uh, so me and the, the the guy who left the band were the main songwriters in the oh, band. Oh, okay. Um, was it an organic band or was it like put together by a label or something? It was originally organic. Uh, once we left, and partly why we left is because once you get to that level and there's management, agents, and labels, and they start looking at the balance sheets and right. you know there's other professional songwriters that have... Uh, songs that they test in focus groups and it starts to become a big business and welcome to the machine <laughs> and the reason i started playing music in the first place was so i didn't have to work for the man right um and then i quickly found myself exactly in that position yeah so uh yeah i was 23 when both of those projects were done and um yeah, it was just, it was really discombobulating. Like our worldview had kind of got flipped upside down. I mean, I had been playing in bands since I was 15 at that point. And uh, I thought that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Right. But um, it wasn't until I got all that success that I realized that it didn't, it, it made me less happy. Uh, do you think that was success that, itself or the way it happened like if you had been a solo musician and had that level of success do you think it would have been as unfulfilling probably not mm. um i probably would have i would like to think in hindsight i would have been able to maintain uh, a level of control and sustainability that mm. i think i i would have needed but at that age, who the fuck knows right. what that's they're doing? That's right, yeah. He was the age. oldest at 20. It's hard to yeah. <laughs> know. Were you guys together at that point? We yeah. were. Yeah, we've been together since high school. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we, we're lucky. We've always He was had... really good at playing guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how he got you? <laughs> dorky dude. Doesn't know how to talk, but man, he can strum. I was, yeah, I was pretty dorky. <laughs> So this was outside Chicago. It was outside Chicago, went, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we were lucky. We were together young, but we were always both so busy. She was like, you were try you were originally on track to become a professional ballerina. Mm. Then you broke your ankle. Oh. Then you switched your focus to do pre-med and college. And so we were always pretty consumed with our own tracks. Yeah. Uh, which I think helped, helped our longevity. <laughs> and what was it like, like, being i guess when did you guys marry so we married after like basically between the bands and the book is uh, when we got married right. um so after like he's saying we kind of had a big change in lifestyle we owned a few homes um just different kind of work-life balance and then when you decided not to be in the band anymore um we had to shift a lot of those things. And it was at that time that he stopped touring so much and came home and right. we kind of were making our future plans and we were together for like nine years or something at that point. So we're like, you should probably get married. We did. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like being the girlfriend of a dude on stage in front of 30,000 people? 
I mean, it was awesome. I was really proud of him. Like, it was cool to watch him so get awesome. there because, you know, like, we met in high school. So, I first time I saw him was at, like, his Battle of the Bands, you know, this high school band. So, I was oh, accustomed right. to watching him So, you him saw play. it all happen. And, yeah. And it was, when it started getting more popular, yeah, I was just so proud of him and exciting to see his dream come true. You know, and we're so young, so you just think, great, you know, you graduate high school and your dreams come true. This right. is what life is like. Um, it started getting weird, especially right as he joined Panic. Like, there, I would come and see him and he'd be like wearing makeup. And I was like, <laughs> what? This was, this was very <laughs> early on. Uh, I, I, like, the band was pretty theatrical. Right. And I was part of it, like this whole vaudevillian kind of like throwback kind of steampunk uh vibe uh-huh. and i was i definitely yeah there's probably only a couple photo shoots that they got me to wear eyeliner and i quickly was like yes yeah, I'm, I'm fine <laughs> this isn't kiss yeah right yeah uh, it happened really quickly though i mean i went from when i was 19 i was touring with another band which is how i met panic and this was just you know it was a little bit smaller scale like uh but then joining Panic within six months, we were we won a VMA at the MTV Awards, uh-huh. and we were on the cover of Rolling Stone, and we played oh, on wow. SNL. And You've been on the cover of Rolling Stone and played SNL. No shit. How did I miss all this? Where the fuck was I? It's were, so weird. You were writing uh, Sex at Dawn. I guess. I was in Spain, yeah. It's strange how like there are these whole worlds that you have no idea are there. You know, and well, it's, it's so just, strange to have been in it, yeah, and to step outside it and to realize that's not, it's not, that's not the world, right? There are that lots of people who just right. never saw. I mean, it, we're talking even in America, but like, forget about the rest of the world, you know? That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. So, like, was there? Were you like? Did you feel like, oh my god, like every woman in this place wants to bang my boyfriend? Um. Yep. he plays the guitar too well yeah no and i think that that again i felt like i was already kind of experienced with that because even like not at the more famous level like there's just musicians oh thank you um have like a bizarre effect on women for whatever reason that's why they play um, yeah luckily for us we were not only very busy like we were doing press all day and traveling right. and then playing shows at night. But a lot of our fans were only like 12 and 13 years old. Uh-huh. So there was like, yeah, yeah we didn't. And when I joined the band, none of the other members had ever, they're from Las Vegas. Huh. None of them had ever smoked or drank oh. or done anything. Um, <clears throat> so is this like Christian rock? No, no. Uh, the, Mormon rock. The, sing, the singer comes from a Mormon family. Oh, really? But he was kind of he kind of rebelled from that. But uh, yeah, for whatever reason, they just never were really introduced to that stuff. Um, I eventually in, introduced cannabis to them. Oh, nicely it, done. Kind of became a slippery slope after that. Oh boy. So, so you, I don't, I don't take full responsibility. So you like you got them all high and then you left the band, just More abandoned them. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it went. Nice. No, I, I think I saved them. I think they were younger and uh, they were losing their minds because hmm. uh, it's the, the, just pressure. the pressure. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of pressure. I mean, there was at one point there's probably fifty people working for us who rely on a paycheck, right? You know, and were any of their parents involved and like come on tour or anything? No. So you're like 19 years old on tour, 
no adult supervision other than handlers who basically want to use you for money, right? More or less. Yeah. I mean, we. I feel like we were lucky. There was a lot of people close to us that actually cared about us, but right. at the end of the day, it's transactional. There's a. I remember watching this uh, Beatles documentary years ago. I think it was a BBC thing. I don't, I don't remember, but uh, I remember there was a particular scene where they were they interviewed the three surviving Beatles um, in different places. You know, like George was in Hawaii and Ringo. I don't know where the fuck he was, and Paul was like on his boat on the Thames or something. And but they were talking about the same events, you know, and it was so interesting. They would just cut from one to the other and it was if it was as if one person were telling the story right you know like they were all reading from the same script their yeah. memory was I've, so I've, intense I've, I've, I've digested a lot of Beatles stuff and mm. and we were no, nowhere near as big or as prolific as the Beatles but a similar feeling of like being in this bubble and like it was us against the world and yeah you know we were the only ones who could relate to each other because it was such a specific situation we're right. dealing with right um and back to what we were saying before about like how pressure kind of creates these circumstances the beatles are a perfect example i mean in 5 years they made yeah. 11 of the best albums ever made yeah and then then exploded yeah. you know imploded yeah however you want to say uh, well- what I was going to say about that Beatles documentary is there's a moment where they're in LA. I think it's their first American tour and Elvis wants to meet them. So they take a, they get in a, a limo and they go up to the Hollywood Hills to Elvis's house and they go in and there's a piano and he asks them to play a couple of tunes and I think he sings along or I don't, I don't know. I forget what happens. And then they go back and they get in the limo and they're all shocked. Mm -hmm. And one of them says, I'm so glad we're together because that's what happens when you go through this alone. Yeah. Like that dude's fucking lost, you know? Yeah. At least we have each other. And arguably even with each other, the Beatles still got pretty lost. Yeah. But I do feel like Paul. Seems fine. <laughs> yeah, I think Ringo seems fine too. You know, yeah, I think he's had some stints in rehab. And- Has he? Yeah, but when I see him doing interviews or whatever, he just seems like a dude. Yeah, like definitely a dude who's been through like extraordinary experiences. But yeah, I think it's it's such a great accomplishment to keep your shit together when you go through some something like that and you don't fall for it. Right. Yeah. I mean. We've all seen enough behind the musics to know that the story usually ends pretty bad. Yeah. 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 Ego and Yeah, and it's unfortunate drugs. because, you know, I feel like it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Just like so many things in our world, like we can both progress and not destroy ourselves in the in the in the process. Yeah. But it seems to be the way. Yeah. What did you, uh, what were your influences when you were getting into music? Like, who did you really admire? The Beatles were probably the biggest one. Yeah. Um, and even in Panic, I think the Beatles influenced all us all because of that collaboration. Where mm. it was like, the, you know, the fact that you can listen to a Beatles album and there's a song on there for every mood almost right and from each of their different perspectives and 
the cohesion mm-hmm. that that created it's like nowhere else could that have happened so were you and your your buddy the the paul and john of panic did you did you think uh, of was, yourselves was, in those terms not, maybe in hindsight we probably did think of ourselves even though we shouldn't have <laughs> <laughs> well but it just, was a little bit more complicated yeah. um you know and the singer of the band uh he's an amazing singer and an amazing musician so we would write a lot of the stuff but he was able to like really make it shine right polish it right and and, and the drummer as well had you know, we all had our sensibilities that, 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 that added up, maybe not the same fractions as the Beatles, but similar vein. Right. So everybody contributed. It wasn't just the two of you and the other guys waiting to hear what to sing. For, uh, for one album, that's kind of how it was. And then, uh, out of that kind of spawned the seeds of our discontent Right. for, cause everybody, Everybody kind of wanted different things and, yeah. you know, the management, I feel like was kind of trying to refine it and maintain their control. And yeah, it's just complicated. I mean, a marriage alone is complicated. Enough right. And just when, two. And yeah. There's four plus managers and agents right. and labels. It's, right. Plus employees. Plus I mean, employees. Yeah, yeah, it's really complicated. Everybody's got it. And there's no like SOP rule book of, you know, how you're supposed to go about <laughs> how to run running a band for dummies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was 2010 when all that ended. And, um, and yeah, I was, uh, I was probably depressed and in shock when it ended or leading up to it, leading up to it. And when it ended, was it your decision or was it like something that happened? It was ultimately our decision, but a lot of things happened that kind of pried us apart in different ways. And you and you and the other guy left together. We left together. We had a handful of songs that were going to be the next panic album. Oh, right. So we started our own band and uh, recorded, up in Topanga. Oh, right. Um, but like I said, all the kind of creative differences and personal differences and egos and drug habits were all kind of still simmering over. Right. It just didn't last long. I, we were talking about it on the way up here and we we're like, yeah, we were just, we were just burnt out. Like we were starting a marathon, like just having finished one. Right. Without any recovery time. Must've been interesting. Is this the first time you've been up here for a while? Uh, no, well, we've driven up here a few times, um, and actually, my dad passed away this year, and uh, like an honor to him, like he used to like camping and stuff. So I spent a lot of time up here after that, camping mm. and hiking. Right. Uh, like Malibu Creek is right down the road. Right. It's like one of the most beautiful spots on earth. How are you doing with? Uh, I'm, and we don't have to talk about it if it's raw for you, but my dad just died about That's a year right. ago yeah. as well. How's that feel for you? Are you still sort of? realizing that he's gone is that still happening um i i i've expected it he never went to the doctor and he smoked two packs a day his Mm. whole life um so it wasn't a surprise right and we weren't that close either Mm. i mean it wasn't we didn't have a bad relationship but it's interesting he liked camping but he smoked two packs a day yeah interesting contradiction (laughs) there it's a different generation i suppose yeah um he had he had my brother when he was 17 so they got started young right i think you just get thrown into that he was a musician as well but never really got to pursue it because Mm. of his other obligations 
Um, but yeah, as far as processing it goes, uh, I thought I was fine. It, I, I'm a pretty laid back guy and I don't, stress doesn't really get to me much, but I got shingles. And the doctor was like, are you stressed about anything? I was like, I don't, yeah. I don't think so. But yeah. my dad passed away and I was like, yeah, that's, that's what it is. You know, it's a funny thing about stress. I, I've, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. I, had a, I have a friend who's a cardiologist and he does these complex procedures where if he fucks up, they die. The patient dies, right? And he describes himself as a laid back guy and he kind of talks like you, like there's this smooth, low key kind of... And I and I said, like, you must get so stressed out when you do. He's like, no, dude, I don't feel stress. I'm fine. It's great. I just focus. Everything's good. And my feeling is like, like you are stressed. You just don't know it. And it comes out in other ways. Right. right? Some people it comes out, you know, I don't know. It's like anger, let's say. Right. Some people swear, like, yeah, fucking, and they get it vents and then it's gone. And other people just hold it in, and but they're still angry. Why are you angry? I'm not angry. Yeah, <laughs> you're angry. Who are you calling angry? Um, it turns into shingles. <laughs> yeah, it comes out in shingles or back pain or digestive issues. Or tumors. Or could be tumors or your hair falls out or you can't get a heart on or you, you can't sleep. I mean, there are all these ways that your body expresses that something's out of balance or something needs to be resolved and some you know i it's hard to tell sometimes whether you're actually not stressed or you're just not conscious of it i i experience that all the time and that's why i guess that's why i asked because i'm sometimes confused about the grief i have because i feel like there should be more right and so is it that I've just processed it in a healthy way and everything's cool or am I in some sort of denial about it? Right. Well, uh, I'm somewhat familiar. He, he, your dad had cancer. Uh, well, he had he had had cancer. He had a liver transplant okay. 15 years before so it was he kind died. Of a process. Yeah. He was in the ho- in and out of the hospital for a while. So there was time for me to realize this was coming and think about what it would mean and, and all then, that. And then the relief. You know, you're talking about the yeah. lack of grief. I'm surprised by the amount of relief. Yeah. Because my dad was three months in the hospital from diagnosis to to passing away. Was it lung cancer? It was skin and lung and brain. Oh, and oh yeah. yeah. It kind of had spread everywhere. But, yeah, that was the biggest shock for me is I just felt so happy. Right. It was over. I was like, God damn, he right. doesn't have to live like that anymore. And my family doesn't have to be there every day. Just right. Just waiting. And, right. And, uh. Yeah, it's it's strange because as much as you want to be prepared for a big change like that, I mean, it shakes you in ways that are inconceivable. Yeah, and I definitely feel like I have this this a different outlook. I've been taking better care of myself <laughs> and just trying to yeah. enjoy life because yeah. it really is short. And you know, once someone's gone, they're gone. It's a great way to honor them too. Is right. to you know, I thought about that like. Yeah, I felt like while my dad was sick, a lot of things were on hold. And then once he died, it was like, okay, time to like clean this shit up. Like do all these things that I've been waiting to do and make yeah. decisions that I've been holding off on. And I kind of felt in a way like it's a, like I'm doing it for him in a sense or, or just at least making his death 
impactful in a way that he would be appreciative of, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like no matter how good or bad you get along with your parents, like it's undeniable that they're the reason you're here. Yeah. And like, and it's like they're running interference for you. They're up ahead. They're right. blockers if in a football, you know, like you're returning the punt and they're blockers. And then when they're gone, it's like, oh, shit, now it's just me. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting. Is your mom alive? She is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my dad was young. He was 62. Mm. So, uh, but like I said, we had kind of expected it. So it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't as as big of a shock as I'm sure some people's losses. How happened. did he feel about your success with the band? <laughs> he, he loved Panic. Uh-huh. Uh, every time I'd go home to visit them, he'd make me sit down and watch our live DVD that I was on. Oh, really? <laughs> so he wasn't much of a talker. Wait, he made you watch yeah, that's right. your DVD with him. He wasn't much of a talker. <laughs> so that's kind of, he was a big Jimi Hendrix fan. So he uh, used to watch like those live, his live. Was he a guitarist? He was a guitarist. Yeah. And yeah, that was, it was kind of strange. I mean, it was kind of fun to be able to have something to enjoy with my dad. Yeah. It was weird that it was me on TV. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I, yeah, he, I think, I think Thank it, God you weren't a porn star. That's right. You know, that would have been really awkward. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming the same thing would have happened. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think he was happy. I mean, like I said, he didn't really get to do music to the capacity, I think he wanted to so getting to watch me do it i also think uh that put a big strain on our relationship when i left the band Mm. because he worked construction his whole life i mean Mm. he was in the trenches right and to see me walk away from being a potential multimillionaire in this ginormous band to like you know take life in stride and you know be a (laughs) be a, a obscure artist again yeah it didn't really make sense to him. I don't think he understood, you know, I think in the Midwest, especially you wear your fatigue as a badge of honor. Right. And hard working, God fearing man. That's right. And yeah, the more you put up with, like the more people revere you. Mm. And so, yeah, it was, it was conflicting to, you know, I know I knew personally that I had to leave for my own sake, my, my own sanity. Um, but yeah, it was conflicting. I mean, even now, you know, they're one of the biggest bands in the world right now. And I know that it was the right move for me to leave, but it's easy for me to regret it in times of stress or, yeah. or whatever. Did you walk away from, I mean, do you have residuals on the song? So you still have income stream? Yeah, I do. I mean, I mean, it couldn't have worked out any better for me to not only get the experience to travel the world and do all that and to realize that it wasn't really what was going to make me happy, but then also to get enough of a buffer to like be able to explore, uh, you know, with residual royalties I get now, it's allowed me to live my life more in my own terms. Yeah. I mean, that's perfect. You have some financial security and total freedom. I just, it's a nice mix and talking about, your book, which I just listened to the audiobook. Thanks for doing an audiobook, by the way. It oh. would have taken me six months to read. <laughs> Forty-five minute increments. Yeah, yeah. My brain doesn't. It was. It was fun. I'm. I, I. You've probably heard me say I'm seriously considering doing a tenth year anniversary Sex at Dawn audiobook. 
Yeah, that's right. So we were actually talking about this because we haven't done an audio book yet because life kind of got in the way. Right. Um, and she, I know you hired actors for the for I the didn't. Book, Audible or, did. But right. Yeah. 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 You didn't read it yourself. No, and I offered to. I wanted to. And they basically patted me on the head and told me to be on my way. Right. They let me read the preface. Okay. Uh, which is the story about a monkey attacking me and my girlfriend in Penang. And, um, it's like five pages or something. Uh, yeah. And, and they hired these actors who, in my opinion, I mean, nothing against voice actors, but they, they just drained all the humor out of it. They, you know, it was like machine, right. You know, bonobos are blah, 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 blah. Like it could have been, they could have been reading a cookbook. It's so anyway, I, uh, yeah, Cassie's yeah, worried, I Cassie's want to do worried it. because our, our book is based, uh, man, we're, we're on so many tangents right now. Yeah. I don't even remember. You were asking me what it was like for girls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lasting after John. Exactly. And then suddenly we're on audiobooks. Yeah. So you guys, I mean, this is a memoir, right? Is it told only from your perspective? Um, yes, it is definitely from my perspective. Uh, and it is a memoir. I think it's kind of specific to the travel, um, not necessarily like my whole life story. Right. That gets woven in, um, but it really is a narrative about the story, about, you know, from the minute we took off to go to Costa Rica to the minute we came home. And right. It's a memoir the with the, our six-month sabbatical to Costa Rica as the backdrop. Right. To tell this story. So ju just after leaving the band? Yeah, right. so we left the it took band. took us about a year to yeah, like clean everything up. I had right. to sell, basically. I had, a, I had a house and a townhouse that I couldn't afford. Um, right. I was renting out the townhouse, and we just basically sold everything we owned and minimized and... Got tried, married. Got married. That's when that happened. So what? how, how did you first hear about uh, this idea that John was going to leave the band. Was this a sudden thing or you saw it coming? No, I think I, I definitely saw it coming. Um, I think from the outside perspective, it was actually kind of easier to, it was like a lot more objective to see what was going on with them. Cause like, I wasn't really as emotionally involved with any of it except for him. Were um, you like the Yoko who I broke think up so, the band? Yeah. I, I actively no, went in. And, <laughs> um, I was still living in Chicago. So at the time, you know, John was out here a lot in yeah. either Vegas or eventually they kind of relocated into California and, um, and I was still living at home. So, or back in Chicago and, I think that he vented a lot to me about like the, exactly what he was talking about. Like, this is supposed to be my dreams coming true. Mm. Like, why is this not what I was expecting? So like, I think I kind of realized he was unhappy maybe even before he did. Were you in med school at this point? I never, no, I never made it to med school. Mm. So when I broke my ankle after the ballerina situation, um, Were you I, performing when or? I was performing when I broke it. Yes. It, and I had like a scholarship to college. It was all mm. set up. And then, yeah, I just kind of had to completely pivot. And I actually went into studying psychology. It's hard to pivot on a broken ankle. Yeah. That image hurt. And then yeah, had to I imagine. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, so I was all set, like signed up for college to to do dance performance and all these things. And I had to completely kind of change what where I was headed. And so I went into psychology, found it fascinating, thought, why not pre-med? Um, but by the time I actually graduated, he had joined the band. Yeah. And so at that point, I didn't really feel like there was room for both of those big careers. It was like, if we ever want to see each other like mm. I can't be in med school and you can't be in panic at the disc I don't know like mm. we could but that's not the choice we made right, <laughs> so right um so yeah I w- I forget exactly um what the question was so about about the, <laughs> I well, I, what I wanted to get into was how you felt about like walking away from that life yeah, I was I mean, fine you, with it. sounds it. like you weren't actually in it as much. Like you weren't touring with the band right. and all that. I wasn't in it as right. much. And I just, again, I wanted him to be happy. It was right. hard. He would be coming home and then have to leave for like weeks at a time. And he didn't seem to really be enjoying it. So it's like, well, why are you like, why are you going if you don't want to do it? And like, right. so that and was. And the money wasn't an issue for you? Like, oh, we could like have a huge house. And we were, we were. By the time when I was 22, we were already so far beyond what I ever thought I was going to yeah. be. Were you able to save gonna... it or were you blowing it on uh, fast cars? And... No, I saved a lot of it. I lost a lot of it in the housing market because I oh. bought it in 2007. Oh, <laughs> right. Good timing. Hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, that's part of kind of what uh-huh. turned our whole worldview upside down is mm-hmm. all this shit happened. And we were just like, you know, we were just, we didn't, we didn't come from money we didn't come from like families who like really studied the stock market or anything like that and so yeah it was just kind of this big shock that like well i bought this house and now it's worth half as much as i bought it for like Mm. how does that work right i was told my whole life to invest in real estate right only goes up and so i remember it so vividly we were cutting all our bills we got rid of cable we were like this was so fun to like really stripped down yeah get back to basics of like what we thought would be important and we watched this video on on youtube i don't know if you've seen it it's michael rupert uh it's called collapse and it's basically a 90 minute documentary how and he lays out he's he's an ex uh lapd officer who like blew the whistle on them like running drugs Hmm. uh into the country and it's a 90 minute documentary where he basically lays out all the reasons why civilization is collapsing. Oh, I gotta watch uh, that. Yeah, Michael Rupert. Um, And then shortly after that, we watched the Zeitgeist series. Oh, yeah. Peter Joseph, which was actually the first episode of your podcast that I listened to was Mm. his episode. Um, And those two things kind of like set us on this trajectory. Like, wow, there are these people who are thinking about how the world is the way it is and how it could be different and Mm. like what we're not paying attention to. And it just opened up our minds and kind of radicalized us into this whole new way of thinking and, Mm. uh, you know, perceiving the world specifically like big business and and all that stuff. So that kind of set us on the trajectory to sell all our stuff. And, and, uh, we originally were like, well, if the world is going to burn down and destroy everything along with it, um, we might as well like do what we want to do and like carpe diem, exactly. baby. Yeah. So we went on a family vacation with uh, my brothers and my folks uh, to Hawaii, mm. and we had never been there before. We were like, "Holy shit! Like you could choose to live here. Like, why would you want to go anywhere else?" <laughs> yeah, the suburbs of Chicago right. have yeah. nothing. To, yeah, yeah. Snow is 
horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that a lot. Like when I was traveling around the world, it's just like, there are places like this and people are living there. Yeah. What? Yeah, What's going on? They must not know this exists, you yeah, know? Poor, poor people. Yeah. Uh, but then Hawaii, we did some research and it was way too expensive. Mm. And so we stumbled on some website that compared Hawaii to Costa Rica and mm. basically, you know, way cheaper cost of living. Right. A little bit more authentic as far as like the culture. Sure. Like, been, is, Pura vida. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, it was like uh, six months after that that our townhouse sold. And we had two weeks to pack up all our shit. Nice. We, we sold it back to the bank. We couldn't even sell it privately. Like, oh, really? We closed on mm-hmm. it. And, uh, yeah, we moved to Costa Rica with our dog and our two cats. So you actually moved. We did. Yeah. We did, yeah. We were originally huh. contemplating on staying there. Yeah. Um, did you buy a place there? You we rented no, something? We, were, we rented a small little cottage. We lived on like an organic farm for a month mm. and then found this little cottage right on the beach for like 400 bucks a month. Nice. <laughs> and yeah, we basically, she wrote, she journaled every day. I, I, I wrote music. We hiked everywhere, mm. uh, cooked, you know, cooked all our own food. And right. Just, Fresh fish. Yeah, yeah. It was a small little remote fishing village. So yeah, we could go. The fish, the guys would be coming in on the boats, and we'd buy lobster right, from, right. right directly from them. And were you on the Caribbean side or Pacific? The, the Pacific. Pacific side. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we were in a town uh, called Kabuya, right uh, near Montezuma and Malpais, which is like a big surfing capital. Mm. Um, right on the, the Nicoya Peninsula. Nicoya Peninsula. It's a it's a blue zone. Actually, mm. I don't know if you've heard of blue zones. Where people live real long, right. super healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the majority of the people live to like a hundred plus. Right. It has to do with diet and community and low stress. Low stress. Yeah. yeah. So that seemed right up our alley, and uh, you know that's basically what the book is about: is us going there and kind of hitting reset and like trying to keep an open mind and figuring out what it is we wanted next. And I think to go back to your question about like the money and everything that right. was what we kind of wanted to ask next because we were keep in mind we were 25 and there was this question like okay so we've had it all happen like the right. whole american dream you know right. the big house in the suburbs the you're famous like this whole thing and if it's not really what we want then what do we want and like Costa Rica was wonderful because it literally removed us from our culture. So it forces you to be like, well, what is this life? Who are you actually? Because you can't just do the same thing right. you did every day just because that's how you grew up and what right. the inertia is like. You know? yeah. um, and so I think that that actually forced us to think about why, you know, money was this ultimate pursuit and all these other things. If it's, if it's mm. doesn't give you the things that you thought it was going to, like what else is there? Yeah. We felt so grateful to have been able to answer so many of those questions or even ask them. Right. At, it's a great luxury, journeys. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. A luxury for sure. And yeah. And to be able to ask them from the perspective of having seen it from, from the top of the mountain. Right. It's hard. Cause I, I spent a lot of time trying to get people to understand that, their ladders up against the wrong wall, you know, like if it's against the wall of ambition and money and it's not going to work, you know, like I've been, I haven't been like where you were, but I had a man in my twenties offer me a million dollars literally to stay in New York and do a job that I didn't enjoy mm-hmm. that wasn't aligned with my interests and values and all that. And, um, yeah, it's it's a great luxury to have had that tangible 
There it is. It's on the table. Now, do you really want it? Is it really, what's a million dollars worth in terms of years of your life, in terms of happiness, in terms of authenticity? It's, yeah, I mean, and then on the other side of the coin, it's, 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 it's you got to remember, like, there's people out there making 20, 30 grand a year who are listening to us thinking, you guys. Fuck you guys. <laughs> no fuck you guys. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's no doubt that... Uh, you know, there's a, there's a margin. I, you know, I talk about in Civilized to Death that there's, uh, you know, I talk about in terms of wine, like a $5 bottle of wine is probably going to make you feel like shit. A $15 bottle of wine is going to, I mean, that's about the sweet spot for me. That's as good as uh, a $150 bottle of wine. I don't need it. I, you're just a fool. <laughs> What's that? Now you're just a fool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or a watch, you know, like, hey, you can get a nice watch for 300 bucks. It looks great. Tells the time. Waterproof. Fucking $10,000 Rolex. Really? You know, and there's some people in this world who get that Rolex and it does that. It does bring them that happiness. Do you think so? I mean, surely some people, I mean, to each his own, I guess is what I'm saying. You know? Yeah. You don't want to offend the rich fuckers. Well, I say, fuck them. Not even a fan. Sell your Rolex. Like, you don't like the feeling of the Rolex. <laughs> I feel like it's the feeling of being able to wear $10,000, right. like a piece of jewelry yeah, that you're right. so addicted peop- to. Is some, that a good thing? Some like, people who can't express themselves through art, this is the only thing you yeah. know. It's, but see, that, that's the thing. Like they're, they're working. I, and I don't mean to be judgmental here. I, I'm actually coming from a place of compassion for them because I think they're working under false assumptions that the money, the Rolex, the status is going to impress people. The problem is it impresses the kind of people who are impressed by a Rolex, which generally they're not the kind of people you want to hang with that you don't want to hang with. I don't think they want to hang with them either. They just don't know it yet, right? right? They haven't had the experience that you guys are talking about of coming to the realization like, oh, this is all bullshit, right? right? And actually, what is demonstrably more likely to make them happy is sell the Rolex and take that money and give it to someone who really needs it and change their life or, you know, pay someone's hospital bills, your friend who can't afford to go to the hospital, but she's got some, you know, issue that is really worrying her pay that you'll feel better. You'll feel so much better than walking around with a dumbass Rolex on your wrist. Yeah. It's selfish in a way right, is what yeah. I'm saying. It yeah, actually it's, works. It's ultimate, yeah. It's the ultimate selfishness. Like, because we're designed well. to feel good when we help each other. That's what that book's about, right? It's like, yeah, so I don't know. I don't mean to be judgmental, but I, I do no, think... And I, and I agree with you. I'm sympathetic, too. I mean, even in all everything I've learned, I can still be driving down Sunset Boulevard and, and be envious of someone's cool apartment or, you mm. know, with a, the great view overlooking the ocean or whatever. Like, right. Those things can still get into you of, you know... It's so cultural. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, 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 it's all around us. Yeah. Status and, and, and luxury. And well, you can see I live like a king here. I mean, hey, you people can't see the luxury that surrounds us at the moment, but it's very impressive. Yeah. I mean, lots of gold. Mostly gold. Yeah. <laughs> very uncomfortable couch. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a Trump, Trump kind of uh, property here. Yeah. Yeah, I just try to I try to be mindful because I know so many people are struggling and and yeah, you want to teach the lesson that that the tr- 
<laughs> true happiness is internal and non-material, but it might be one of those lessons that you have to learn in your own way. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And none of, and none of this is to minimize the, the difficulty and the true suffering that comes when you don't have enough money, which is why I'm trying to encourage people who have more than enough to help the people who don't have to enough for Bernie. So we can just move on with Please, our lives. Exactly. Right. Nobody should be, you know, unable. I'm, I'm, this is really fresh in my mind. Cause I have a close friend I was talking to recently who she's feeling pain in her heart and her arm and her neck and, but she doesn't want to go to the doctor because she can't afford it and she doesn't want to get into lawsuits and all this stuff. And it's like, that's absurd. Yeah. That's absurd that, that anyone should, you know, be worried about their health and not go to a doctor because they're thinking about bills. It's, that's yeah. not the way to yeah, live. It's absurd, you know, and, and for as disheartening as, as the political climate is right now, it's also inspiring to see how far we've come in even the last decade. You know, from the Clintons to Obama to now Bernie and all the other people who are basically adapting a lot of his ideas. We're to think about where we'll be ten years from now, it's like counteracting the propaganda hopefully is a little bit more successful. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe too late by I, I I hope you're right, man. But when I think about how far we've come in the last ten years, I I don't. It looks like we're going in the wrong direction to me. Trump as president is. Right. I can't. This is like the death gap. You know, a dying, the death rattle of right. of yeah. old white man. That's right. Let's hope so. We'll I mean, see. They are old. Yeah, but they're you know slightly less old ones ready to take their sure. place. Yeah, I don't know. I I think for me, American politics, and we probably shouldn't go into this too deeply because it gets so boring. But uh, for me, this country in 1980, 79, 80, there there was a you know moment of truth where you had Jimmy Carter in the White House saying, um, you know, the Saudi Arabia OPEC has cut oil, the prices have gone crazy, all this stuff's happening. So our response to that should be to not be so dependent upon fossil fuels. So he put solar panels on the White House. He instituted the national uh, speed limit of 55, uh, efficiency standards for cars, all this stuff. And he went on, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but it's it was became known as the malaise speech um, where he went on TV, wore the sweater. And he said, uh, you know, I'd, I think what we need to do is reduce our consumption of energy, become more efficient, more mindful, um, join the world. We're going to join the metric Put system. Put on a sweater, turn down your thermostat. Let's consume less, right? Quality. It's what we're talking about. Good life isn't about buying more. It isn't about consuming more. It's about thinking and, you know, being more mindful. Ronald Reagan came along and said, fuck that. We're Americans. Let the world adapt to us, crank motherfucker. Yeah, crank it up. First day in office, took the solar panels off the White House. Yeah, and that's that's what's, I mean, for how petty the trolling has become uh, between the two parties. I mean, parties didn't even exist when the country was founded, and now it's just become a, a shit show. Yeah. And I agree with you. It gets very boring, the day-to-day of politics, but at the same time it's truly the only vehicle we have to implement any sort of yeah. meaningful change in our lives and so how do yeah. we find that balance between the day to day i mean 
the day to day is so excruciating because news companies need to make a profit. Yeah. And that's all it is. And some people follow it like sport. Yeah. And then other people tune out completely and only get the headlines and both. And they play it like sport. They play it like sport. You know that great Frank Zappa quote, politics is the entertainment division of the military industrial complex. (laughs) It's all a show. I mean, ultimately, I I don't don't want to get too cynical here, but I mean, I think Bernie's great. But could Bernie actually do anything? Would they let him or would Mitch McConnell or some other asshole block every fucking thing he tried to do like they did with Obama? You know, and I think it's an interesting for me, like I love the idea of government and like an organized society. Like this seems like something as human beings like we want to do um the politics does seem to hijack that so much like, yeah. where we're not allowed to make progress we're not allowed to have ideas because like this is the way that it is and i think it was actually in your book where you said um like he who controls the pr- like past controls the future and he who controls the present controls the past right and i like that so much that i think you know when i get into political conversations with so many people it comes down to like well that's just how it is and that to me is the most frustrating piece like why we invented this as humans like this isn't this isn't rain and earthquakes like this is our idea like why can't we edit it like that seems kind of crazy you're right it's been hijacked i mean just like religion is hijacked spirituality Mm -hmm. the political system is hijacked efficiency yeah yeah well we'll see what happens I, i i do feel like bernie you know often says like this is uh, we need a political revolution in this country. And he's right. And I fear that if there isn't a political revolution, there will be an actual blood in the streets revolution at some point. Yeah, I mean, everything, anything's possible. It's like, again, historical context is so important. People forget that we had a civil war. Yeah. You know, they don't... World War Two was 100 years ago. You yeah. Know, it's not... That's not that far back. Yeah. And we've come a long way. And yeah, the wars have gotten more covert. And World War One was 100 years ago. Right. Yeah. right. yeah. Yeah. World War Two was what, 70 or yeah. something. Yeah. 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 It's uh, it's an interesting time to be alive. That's for but sure. There's, back to the point of that we have come a long way. I mean, even the other candidates who I don't I don't believe are as progressive as, as Bernie or at least more along that that line yeah and yeah sure they're probably half of them are full of shit and corporate shills but like, but they see that that attracts votes and yeah, that's yeah. important yeah i like andrew yeah. yang a lot i don't know if you know a lot about him but a little bit yeah i, I feel uh, like he's like he would be like a great uh secretary of commerce or you know he's super smart very smart and, and that, seems funny and cool yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all data. I just read a, a article about him. Uh, interesting parallels to your life, actually. Now that I think about it, it was an article about how he went to uh, his parents were from Taiwan. You know, very like sort of, um, or you know, first generation. Like you're going to work, you're going to become a doctor, you're going to like have security, all the stuff we didn't have. And he went to. Like he went to Exeter, I think, uh, Philip Exeter Academy, which is the super high-end private high school. And then he went to Brown University, very smart, you know, top of the class. Then he got a, I think he did a business degree. And then he got a job on Wall Street, like, boom, you know, just 
nailing Checking it. Checking the boxes. Checking yeah. the boxes, going. And within, I think, three months, I think he was at Goldman Sachs. Yeah. And within three months, he was like, uh, can't yeah. do this. Doesn't work. It's not enough. And he quit. And his parents, especially his father, was like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? Yeah. Um, yeah, again, yeah. First generation immigrants, like. God damn, that must have been a hard yeah. transition. Right. Yeah. To yeah. Then think in, about treating it willy nilly like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, but he was obviously calculated, but from his dad's perspective, right? Like you're throwing away, yeah. you know, what we've been working for, including your mother and I, to put you in a position to have that. You know. So think about that extrapolated to every other person who has had a family sacrifice for them, and right. Yeah, it's the momentum of it all is pretty crazy. Yeah. I like yeah. I like in your book how you differentiate optimism and hope. Mm. I feel like that really is key to at least being able to live with all the uncertainty. Right, like, right. Tell them it, it pays to be pessimistic because that's how you can. That's how you find problems. You know. I I mean I think it's the problem is you know as I think I said in the book that when optimism and hope get conflated people are easily manipulated as I think I said, I hope I said like, that's exactly the attitude that the casino wants to see. Never give up, never give up. Right. Your luck's about to change and that's how you walk out of there penniless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I do think I get shit. People say, Oh, you're so pessimistic, you know, or, or you hear these like, you know, oh, I have to be an optimist. Like, no, you don't actually. Right. What you have to be is honest. Yeah. What do you see? What is actually happening, right? Yeah, because otherwise you just blind yourself and allow them to keep picking your pocket. Yeah, and and again, I'm we're all guilty of the fact that like you still have to enjoy your life no matter how much suffering is going on. You yeah, know? and and that's I, that's something that I feel like I struggle with a lot is like whenever I'm enjoying myself, my mind automatically goes to the people who are suffering. I was paralyzed by. Yeah, myself. well. Yeah, one of the... the you can't live your life like that. I mean, it's impossible to save everybody. Yeah. there's. I read this book a long time ago called um, Shambhala by Chogyam Trungpa. And I've, I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Like something Duncan Trussell would read. Yeah, it's, it's up his alley. Yeah, Trungpa was a Tibetan Buddhist, who, one of the first to come and teach in the U.S. in the 60s, I think. Um Anyway, the point in the book was he said, uh, he said, Westerners have this idea that enlightenment is when you're just always happy and everything's great and you're just always in the state of like total contentment. And he said, that's a total misunderstanding of the concept that enlightenment is that no matter how happy you are, you never forget the people who are suffering. And no matter how horrible you're suffering, you never forget the beauty of the world that's enlightenment that that still point at the center of the hurricane where it's totally silent and everything's happening around you and you are balanced right and and then the line was an enlightened life is joyful participation in the sorrows of the world right and i think that's it like that's it you gotten there yeah, I think more or less, yeah. you know, most of the time. Yeah, I'm like you. I if you know, past a certain age if your heart isn't broken, you're not paying attention. Right. It's it's unavoidable. But the 
beauty is as deserving of our attention as is the suffering and the destruction. And so I think it's sort of a disservice to the world not to recognize its beauty. By recognizing it, you give it something. It's almost like, you know, a, a beautiful woman. Like you want her to feel beautiful. You want her to like absorb, like, I don't know how to say it. It's Yeah, you want to tip your hat to Peter Gabriel, but you don't want to yeah, pick him out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. You want to acknowledge what's there, but not be a douche about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. I, I'm probably as bad at doing that with women as I am with Peter Gabriel. I'm not sure. You live and you learn. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So what, uh, where are you guys now? What's You were in Costa Rica for how long? A year? We actually only wound up there for six months. Mm. Um, we wound up coming back home. We weren't sure what we were going to do. And when we were there, we kind of had this feeling like it wasn't ours. I don't mm. know. If, um, do you speak Spanish? We sort of learned when we were there. I got pretty good at it. I could kind of get through the day. Um, but Yeah, we tried Rosetta Stone like six months leading up to it and got some basics. But then being immersed in it, picked up a lot of like just necessary. Right. Sean literally managed six months only knowing like Ola and Tranquilo. <laughs> That's all he said. That's all you need. Like, somehow had more friends Lirico. than me. It's <laughs> like four words, but it was actually funny. Yeah. We did Rosetta Stone and I felt great. Funny. And then we got there and I was like, Oh my God, I'm like a four year old. I know some colors. I can generally like say yes or no, but there's no real communication. There's no humor. There's no sarcasm. Yeah. Like there's, none of these yeah. things that you can do in your native language that right. are so much of your personality um then yeah we lost it in about as much time like we were home for six months and now i don't remember any spanish yeah it didn't it didn't take real deeply i guess it's yeah, yeah. when we were there we uh we had considered staying um <clears throat> you know like cassie was doing yoga and pilates so we and it was like a big retreat area where there's a few places that we kind of made friends with so we imagined what our lives would have been like had we just stayed there and taught yeah. and I would have like cooked there or something because I love to cook and yeah. I could still play, record music and put it on the internet but not really have to tour. And yeah, like three or four months in, we just started both feeling like we felt removed and like we were in a place that didn't belong to us and we wanted to use our work and our talents to help and we felt like coming back to the States, we would be better equipped to do that. Right. I don't know if that was true or not, but that was our instinct. Mm -hmm. How long ago was that? So that was in 2012 um, that we came back and we moved back to Chicago. And then our daughter was born in 2013. Mm. Um, and right. So after we came home, I kind of started putting the book together. Then she was born and then we did nothing else for right. a few years. Cause right. it's crazy. Yeah. We, uh, I rehabbed, a, I, I rehabbed, a, I bought an old foreclosure outside of Chicago and rehabbed that and lived in that for a couple of years. And, uh, yeah, we had our daughter and we, again, I feel so lucky to have been able to take like an entire year off both of us and mm. basically just raise our daughter and be there with her. It was like, I wish everybody could have that opportunity because yeah. it's such a huge transition in your life. And Especially after having a kid. Right. That's Think about, saying. yeah, like if she had been born before you'd done that or you hadn't done that, her life would be totally different. Yeah. And, and so many people never catch up after that. Yeah. You're sleep deprived, like, and definitely. And yeah. 
Especially if you have another one. Especially. Do you have another one? <laughs> no, we only have one. Oh, okay. Was, yeah, and I'm exhausted. I don't know how people do it. Yeah. We're being eco-conscious about it. Oh, that's nice. That's good. And so you can our, still fly. Yeah. One kid, you're still allowed to fly, right? Right. Is that, is that right. the rule? Yeah. Selfishly, yeah. We can travel. We can just put our energy into her and not have to. Cassie was an only child, so uh, I kind of, we were already leaning towards that. Right. You came out all right. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I guess it's still out there. We're definitely conscious that she's an only child. You yeah. Know, we try to, she's got. Try and ignore her, make fun of her and stuff. So she's not too sensitive. <laughs> if you're listening to this kiddo, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, we had the kid and we, uh, I, I released a couple albums, um, just solo. You know, I didn't really push it. I got a, a small fan base that kind of keeps me sustained but john walker john walker yeah um and there, then, are yeah, there any songs that you want to like i don't know if you can even like let me play on the yeah, podcast sure. yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send you a few okay uh, cool yeah um and then yeah it was 2000 we moved out here in 2016 um, yeah, our daughter was two and I had lived out here before and knew I liked it. Mm. She hates the winter and especially and after coaster, I was just never the same, never the same, even though we were home and like where I had lived for 30 years, mm. like I didn't, I couldn't yeah. really be there anymore. I don't know. And again, I, we desperately missed our family and all these reasons that we went back in the first place. Um, but yeah, I just, I was looking for something else. I feel like I was going to ask earlier when you made that shift, right? The, your, your lives were going in a certain direction and then you're like, no, uh, we're actually getting off at this exit here. Did you lose a lot of friends? Did your social world kind of fall apart a little bit? I mean, maybe I'm looking at John cause like maybe yours a little bit more cause you had a lot of connections in that world, but we were lucky like in the Midwest, like your friends are your family. I don't know. These were people we had known for decades like mm. known us since we were children and like we met again when we were 16 so like a right. lot of these friends were In the common. same for us right. um, yeah we've kept like a pretty solid group of like family friends back in the middle right um yeah for me like my entire social network kind of i would think off. so yeah yeah i mean the guys in the band were my only friends at right. a certain point it was it was really isolating you know because yeah. all of my other musician friends who hadn't quite made it were kind of like you know, either yeah. wanting a hand or yeah. like just envious and yeah. know, we were all young and egos. And, yeah. And so, yeah, it was, it was confusing, but, um, and, and I was, I'm always, I'm kind of an introvert, lone yeah. wolf anyway. So, right. So it, it wasn't really that uh, losing, losing the interaction with, with the guys in the band was probably the most discombobulating because yeah. it went from all to nothing right like within a few weeks i was thinking about that because um i've i have a lot of friends in their late 20s and i notice that a lot of them are going through these transitions where you know at that age you're figuring out who you are and it might not be who you thought you were a year or two earlier right i mean that's the whole point and that can be really painful because your friendships are built up around this assumption about who you are and then suddenly you're not that anymore you're not the guy chasing fame you're not the right. superstar you're not and then your friends are like wait a minute like i'm friends with that guy and you're thinking well yeah our friendship's built on this assumption that i no longer hold not only that but you're revered for not changing 
Right. It's like, man, you didn't change at all. Like this huge mm. experience. And like, granted, I didn't change that much, but I naturally changed. Everybody changes. Right. Everybody exactly. changes. Yeah. In their twenties. That's the thing. I, and I say this to my friends, like, yeah, there's this myth that your twenties is like the peak of your life. That's bullshit. Your twenties. It's fucking hard. It's hard. It's a lot of heartbreak. It's just you don't, your back doesn't hurt yet. That's really your only advantage in your 20s. <laughs> like, yeah. That's but what just I feel like lift I found. heavy yeah. things. You'll be fine. <laughs> I was at the doctor yesterday and he was, I was like, so when do I have to like start coming to the doctor every year? He's like, oh, not till you're 50. Like you're still young. Yeah. And like, to me, like, I don't know. I thought by the time I was in my mid thirties, like that was it, you know? But no, <laughs> I realized that I'm, I'm younger that I, I was so much older than <laughs> What's that line? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I wrote that. Yeah, it's some '60s tune. I was much. Yeah, um, I uh, I went to the doctor. I'm 57, and I went to um, like I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago. I decided like, ah, okay, over 50, you're supposed to like get a prostate exam and all this shit, which right. I'm not looking forward to that. Well, okay, I should do it. So I, huh? You'll be fine. Well, you know, all right. I have not had fingers up my ass, let's say. Uh, so I go to the, the Kaiser down here and uh, I, you know, first you have to like do a blood test and a whatever. And, and then they set you up with an appointment. So I go in for the appointment a couple of weeks later and I walk in. Here's the urologist. And he says, hey, I hope you don't mind. I, I scheduled you for a double appointment rather than just a single and I was like, uh-oh, what's the problem? He said, oh, no problem. I just saw your TED Talk. I wanted to pick your brains a bit. <laughs> I'm like, what? What? acknowledge your greatness. freaking so, you out. Exactly. It's like, that's what I should have said to Peter Gabriel. Like, hey, can I give you a prostate exam, Peter? Uh, yeah. Was he talking to you well? Well, it was really funny. So we're sitting there chatting. It turns out the guy's super interesting. He's, he's a fantastic guy. I tried to get him to do my podcast, but he doesn't want to some of the stories he told me I think could get him in trouble you know Fine line. yeah um, but um, yeah he's hilarious and so we're sitting there talking about prehistory and medicine and blah 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 and having a really good conversation at one point he looks at me he says by the way um, you know I do realize you're you're being uh, especially interesting as a way to delay the moment when I put my finger in your ass <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh man, you're right. That That's a great motivator. Yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, are the camera's rolling. Let me step this up a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. So we but did have. Fun. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. He said I had the prostate of a 24 year old. Yeah, woman, but sure. still a 24 year old. Uh, yeah, no, it was great. And we sort of become buddies and we chat. That's cool. Yeah, this is my first time at this doctor, and I could tell that he was trying to become buddies with me. <laughs> Did he know you? Like, I don't think so. Was no. he a fan? I mean, he didn't ask you to sign I hope, anything. Yeah, I hope not. I mean, again, that's part of it. I've been out of the of it for so long. Right. I I, I, I love being behind the scenes, and right? Getting recognized, but you never know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was strange. I could definitely tell he was like, "So you live around here? Like, what do you do for fun?" Yeah, let's yeah. hang out. Yeah. <laughs> Was he a, a urologist? No, he's just a regular. Oh, okay. Regular old doctor. So it wasn't it wasn't an ass thing. <laughs> no. <yet. laughs> Wait till you're fifty, buddy. <laughs> yeah. How old are you guys? You were like thirty or something. Thirty-four. Thirty-four. Yeah. Uh, you're fucking babies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm. our daughter is going to be six in a couple of weeks. It, yeah, I feel, I feel like we're in a 
We're in a good spot. Age is so weird, though, mm-hmm. because like you guys have a kid. I've never had a kid. In an important sense, you're older than me. 100%. I, I, I always tell people, I'll say stuff because I work with a lot of people who are younger and I'll be like, I'm so old. And they're like, you're not that much older than me. And I'm like, no, I have a kid. Right. Like that's what that's makes different. me old. I'm more tired, not necessarily in age, but well, I and mean I don't tired. mean to I just say, mean maturity. Yeah. Like you have, an, you have a perspective on life that is in, in important ways, it's deeper and more mature than my perspective. I'm still living my life. I'm still thinking about me. You guys are, yeah. there's someone else. Parenting is like forced selflessness. Yeah. When, when you do it right. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's something really beautiful and profound about that. I also like, I don't know, as a female, there's so much pressure that like, if you don't have a kid, like you're missing hmm. something. And I don't think that that's true either. Right. I think right. that the reality is like, life is so different for so many people. Yeah. And like, you have to make your own choices. And like, So, yeah, I don't think that you have to, like, again, check all these boxes to have something fulfilled or to become mature or, like, learn all these things. Like, there's other ways to learn the same types of things that you learn. Parenting maybe forces you to learn them earlier or something Your eyes are mesmerizing. I wish this were TV (laughs) so people could feel that. It's, like, hard for Um, me to even... Okay, no, it's 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 not the Dutchness. Like, it's speaking from the female perspective. Like, I'm going to do this, too. I just got eyelash extensions, which is, like... I can't even tell. I'm talking about your... No, I'm telling you. Are you wearing colored lenses? (laughs) People think... She's got great colored eyes. Yeah, but they're... That's that's what it is. I'm it's sorry. plastic surgery. <laughs> I just feel like you have to tell people or like it's all a lie. That's, great. that's really sweet that you do that. I'm well, sorry to pull you off your point with my cheap shallowness here. But. No, that's I thank you. Yeah. I makes them feel worth the money. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm glad you said that because I do think there's a lot of pressure, especially on women, that you haven't lived a full life if you don't do this. And I know uh, quite a few women who have said to me like, Hey, I love my kids. I'm, you know, whatever, no regrets. But if I had my life to live over again, I wouldn't have kids. And it's really hard to say that because once you have a kid, you know, that kid. And now it's like, that's an actual person mm-hmm. and you're never going to wish that person didn't exist. That's impossible. But it, as an abstraction, I do know people who are like eh, you know i felt pressured to do it i didn't do it because i really wanted to right. um i remember when i was working or considering writing the first book a friend of mine in publishing said you should never write a book unless you absolutely have to and i kind of thought like maybe that's a good way to approach child <laughs> like i've thought occasionally like, oh, i'd love to have a kid that'd be great but i don't have to you know like it never was like no, I'm not going to be fulfilled if I don't do this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I, I have no, I mean, I acknowledge and, and honor my friends who do have kids. I think it's fucking amazing uh, and, and beautiful and kind and generous and all these wonderful things. But personally, I have no regrets about not having kids, you know? So it's. If you ever want to babysit. <laughs> well, see, that's. Honestly, I think that's one of the tragedies in the modern world, mm-hmm. right? That we don't have. Um, you know, you guys are overwhelmed and there are people around you who would really love to hang out with a kid whose life would be enriched and, and kids' lives are also enriched by having lots of adults who care for them and love them and it's not like only mom and dad, you know, I think... Yeah, the village is 
the village. The village. Exactly. Yeah. Relocated exactly. And it's all it's same thing with dogs. Yeah. And can't, I love animals, mm-hmm. but I can't have an animal in my life at this point. It would be too. But man, to spend a day hanging with your dog when you guys go off, like fuck yeah, that'd be great. Right. Depending on what kind of dog it is. Nice. Five nice? pound collie. Ah, it's manageable. A, okay, he's manageable. He's not a little yappy pain in the ass. Dog. He does bark a lot, but it's you're, not yappy. You're moving though, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's that well, that's the about? thing. I couldn't do it. I'm going to giving up the apartment here, um, which sucks because I love this place and it's a great like base of operations, you know. But I spent half the year in the van. Like, why am I paying rent? That's our retirement plan, by the way. That's my retirement plan. Yeah, that van. That's I'm it. So envious. It's uh, great. John really wants to live in a van. It's me. <laughs> like, I am. I no, am yokoing the van situation for <laughs> sure. <laughs> yoko is a verb. Not. I've never heard yeah, that. No. <laughs> no, we, have, we have a kid and pets. Yeah. It's not the right time. But yeah. I'm not saving as much as I probably should for retirement right. because I'm not going to need that much. Because the world's going to end anyway. That's, That's right. one option. Or we'll live in a van. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like it. I love it. And so that's Dude, I doing. love it. I mean, I'm in the van. I'm, I'm like, what do I miss? What do I have at home that I need? A shower. Oh, nothing. Got a shower. A shower. In the van. <laughs> you have a shower in your van. Got a okay. Hot shower. Yeah, Tell van. me more because that's what I have against the van. <laughs> well, we'll, all right. We'll wrap this up and I'll go give you a tour of the van. All right. It's, uh, and also, like, who needs a shower? You're, just, you're camped out next to a clear flowing river you get up in the morning you jump in the river you feel great all day you're vitalized i mean a lot of like a lot of time i'm up in idaho wyoming montana hot springs everywhere mm-hmm. it's fucking great it's so nice sit by a fire at night you're you know cook i have a little camp stove stars it's yeah, like you don't need to be sparkly uh, clean if you're not going to a corporate job every day that's it yeah no and also you got wet wipes <laughs> wet wipes are what it's all yeah, about. Oh, yeah, we have plenty of wet wipes. Oh yeah, you have kids <laughs> in the car. Yeah. I probably have some in my purse. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, just in case you need. So you're leaving right. California. Uh, I'll probably have a foot in California and a foot in Colorado. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. we just got here four years ago, and it's been on fire ever since. Yeah, it's kind of terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have family here, okay. right in the canyon, actually, and then my mom and my sister, Culver City. So I'll be around a lot and so i think what i'm going to do actually is leave the van here okay. so that'll be my little apartment when i'm in town right. so i'm not nice. like hassling you know guest rooms and sofas and stuff right. uh have some independence and then i'll have another van in colorado which will be the mountain van four-wheel drive this will be the coastal van right. so like up and down the coast in this one up and down the mountains in that one I'm, I'm working it out. Yeah, I'm getting. Sounds I'm amazing. Yeah. 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 I'm well. glad you're working it all out so he can just kind of take notes. <laughs> well, I, I have a buddy, Andrew, if you're listening, Andrew, Monkey Tooth Podcast, uh, Andrew and Tiffany's hilarious dude. He has exactly the same van, this, this Dodge Sprinter, same year, same color, same everything. And he and his wife are, uh, Driving it to uh, Tierra del Fuego, they're on their way. They went from Alaska. They're on their wow. way to. Oh, wow. Yeah, the, the sprinters are nice because you could stand up. The high, the high yeah. ceiling ones. Yeah, yeah, they're great. All right, let's wrap this up and we'll go do a van. Uh, Everything is moving by Cassie Walker uh, about the these two people who've been to the top of the mountain and decided uh, to climb another one or go back to the valley or I'm not sure or live in the canyon. 
Yeah, we didn't talk about weed at all. Oh, that's right. You got a whole weed thing going on. <laughs> T- tell me about that. I forgot. Um, so yeah, when we moved here four years ago, um, you know, we weren't really exactly sure what we were going to do. And it was me who kind of just was like, well, I want to at least go to a legal dispensary. I have to see what this is all about. Because right. um, yeah, we grew up in Chicago. So legal cannabis was fascinating to me. Um, and I wound up, I was like, oh, I want to get a part-time job in the weed industry. This is a blast. Yeah, she's better at having a job. I'm better at cooking and cleaning the house. Yeah, well, I like that. I like that setup. It's how God intended it. I joke that John's my trophy wife all the time, but yeah. I don't think he likes the joke. <laughs> I can't tell. <laughs> he laughs, but I feel like maybe he has yeah. to. <laughs> it's uh, the least I can do for the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> thank, yeah. thank you. Um, so, yeah, basically I started part-time in the legal industry, and it just, it, it was really fascinating for me, um, and I've been working really hard at it ever since. Um, what, are you, what are you doing now? So I am a compliance director for a cannabis brand. Uh, so I have to go and shower every day for my corporate job. As John oh, so put that's it. But, what um, it is. Yeah. But uh, it's it's actually pretty. But it's weed. You can't show up a little stinky for weed. Well, I mean, yeah, it's definitely the more relaxed, probably corporate position. But um, it's really interesting to see how California has gone from the decriminalized market into an actually government regulated industry and that's been a lot of my work over the last few years is so kind of what, trying to what's that mean compliance through. officer compliance with what compliance with the state regulations so cannabis is regulated by three different state Hardcore bodies regulated like more yeah. so than any other industry so it's, you're running like chemical tests and for pesticides? Um, no, but, and no well, yes, we do have to do lab testing. Basically, anything that you're getting at a licensed retailer at this point has gone through crazy lab testing, not only for uh, actual like potencies to assure that it's actually what they're saying on the label, mm. um, but yes, for heavy metals, microbials, pesticides, like wow. three pages worth of information for everything that goes to retail now. which is why all these vaping problems none of them are about marijuana vaping there or thc it's this tobacco nicotine well it's pretty fascinating um there's lots of stuff in illegal thc um because cannabis is so new there's not a lot of regulations around it there are in california now but not necessarily federally or ah, internationally so i see One issue is that you can buy this kind of hardware and make these types of things without necessarily a lot of enforcement um, because there is still a lot of illegal market floating around. The legal market is like six times bigger than the legal market in California. Right. It's still pretty massive. Huh. Plus we're dealing with like it's even in California who's had like a 20 year industry. We don't have like buckets of research and all these other things to know exactly what's happening you know turning cannabis flower into cannabis vape carts is a pretty new um process process so we're still learning exactly like what what are the long-term effects of using this kind of stuff a lot of the cases that you're seeing we call it vape gate but like everybody's got their names for it either are with illegal thc products or looking at like different additives or flavorings and smokables that might be things like coconut oil are pretty innocuous but we don't know what happens when you start smoking coconut oil yeah coating your lungs with coconut 
coconut oil. Exactly. So this is yeah. the type of stuff that now we're starting to research in and we're seeing, you know, flavorings and vitamin E acetate as being some of the first players in this. But right. I really hope we get more information. Yeah. Um, it's actually interesting. I kind of wound up in my position to be a little bit like, you know, on the side of regulators and on the side of this kind of enforcement because the cannabis industry is really naturally counterculture, right? They don't want to be told what to do. They right. do not want to work for the man, all these types of things. But I think ultimately for consumers, they deserve to know sure. what this is. Well, dosage is a huge issue in the early days. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, and because cannabis is kind of a natural thing, people who, it affects everybody so differently, people who use it a lot need a lot of dosage. They right. love it. And they'll turn around to their friend and be like, try this. Right. And that person now has a terrible experience right. because they're way out of their league. Especially with edibles. Oh my gosh. And that's one of the worst experiences ever. Yeah. And so, Everybody has a bad edible story. Yeah. Everybody has a bad edible story. Well, I didn't feel anything after half an hour, so I took yeah. another one. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Yeah, it's yeah. dangerous. But basically, this is exactly what's happening. So they decriminalized cannabis here in California almost 20 years ago, but it really wasn't until 2018 that they really started laying down laws for like, if you're going to be a cannabis business, this is what it's going to look like. Right. Um, and so for me, I've kind of helped going through with different businesses and say, okay, here's what you've got going on in the decriminalized market. Here's where they expect you to be and kind of helping flip those businesses from the collective cannabis model into the licensed cannabis model. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's harder than you would think <laughs> because it's I'll never bet. been done before. Yeah. And the government, even like the the BCC, you know, is new. This has only been around for a few years. So What's BCC? it's the Bureau of Cannabis Control. So they are ah. the government body in Sacramento that makes ah, sure that we're doing right. all these things correctly. Right. Um, and and yeah, it's all just new. So this is why it's so fascinating for me to be able to work with regulators and industry people who are literally building something from the ground up. Um, right. And I, I'm pretty much just, I train everybody on the rules because it's a lot to read. Right. Um, right. So. I'm excited. I, I, we like cannabis, obviously. And I feel like it specifically helped me a lot through a lot of these transitions to mm. kind of I mean, it instantaneously flips a switch when you're feeling anxious or angry or for you, for me. But again, like some people, mm -hmm. it makes them paranoid or right. and, and edibles different and indica is different from right. the, I, I, sativa. I think like in your book, you talk about end of life with psychedelics. Mm, right. And I can't wait. If anybody's listening, I would love to sign up for an MDMA trial, like uh, monitored study. I've never tried it before, but I'm huh. really interested and would love to do it in a clinical setting. And right. I think cannabis would be a great thing too, because it does affect people so differently. And, right. And, but I also think it could benefit a lot of people. Yeah. Even in like a microdose aspect. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a it's a medicine, no doubt about that. And and you're right, it needs to be regulated. Consumers need to know what they're getting. And I think another probably like I don't know about gummy bears. Why do we need to make things that look just like candy that kids and play with? That's actually against regulation. Oh, really? um, so yeah, it uh. is pretty clear in the California Department of Public Health that it's not supposed to look like anything attractive to children. You literally no. you can't say candy right. on the label and things like that. And yeah, right. it can't be a, shaped like an animal or a body part. 
interestingly enough, Body I'm pretty part. sure that was like included little, little as well. Gummy, gummy dicks. No, penis, no. cannabis, gummies. No. <laughs> what, what other body part are they thinking of? Like, what else could it be? You Noses? know, if they had to write little it down, ears. that it was because they saw something that they were like, yeah, we can't. <laughs> but that's weird. Like, why? I don't I don't get that. Little feet. We, we do need to fact check that one because the regulations changed a lot in the last few years, uh, too. So I forget sometimes what like got in there and then got deleted but you know um, in japan you can't have sex toys that look like dicks that's yeah, the point that's a, whole, that's a whole other issue i mean what a weird thing like that's why in japan all the vibrators are like oh it's a sailor on his boat with his dog and like they're all these like weird almost cartoon character vibrators yeah luckily with the internet we can like start learning from each other and realizing our blind spots <laughs> <laughs> detribalize motherfuckers uh Cool. Well, you got a lot going. Anything else you want to say about cannabis? I've, I, no, I just I, thought we would get to, like, I yeah. figured that's what everybody always wants to talk about. So. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just... We brought you some joints if you want to. Oh, bring, thank uh, you. Thank you. I had... Uh, uh, how, when was it? A woman... Oh, she had me on her podcast, but she came up here to do it. She's like the editor of High Times. Oh, interesting. I mean, she brought me all these like space age vape pens that look like something from Star Trek. It's pretty amazing. It's crazy how far it's gone. I was smoking. I have a friend, Stanley Krippner, who's uh, in his 80s. And we went to um, the Salvador Dali Museum in Spain like years ago. And uh, he said, it would be great if we could smoke a joint before we went in. You know, Salvador Dali, hi, that's what I want. So I rolled up some joints, and we're sitting in the car in the parking lot. I lit up this joint and handed it to him. And he takes the joint, and he puts it between his fingers in both hands. And, like, as he's smoking, it's like his hands are covering his face. And he's smoking through his two hands. And it's like what are you doing? Like, I think I'd gotten high with him before, but it must've been edibles or bongs. I don't remember, but yeah, he like covers his whole face with his hands and he hands it to me. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, dude. <laughs> I'm already feeling pretty high right now. And I said, why, why do you smoke joints like that? Stanley he said, I don't know. I just, I've always smoked them that way. Huh. Somebody then, told him to do that once just to cheese well, him. <laughs> no, you know what it is? I, I, I figured it out. It's that he started smoking in like the early 60s when weed was full of seeds and you'd roll up a big fat joint with the seeds in it and they explode. So you cover your eyes. It's almost like you're wearing a Mm -hmm. welder's mask or something (laughs) to smoke a joint. Because when I started smoking, you had to take the seeds out. You had to like, I remember this whole procedure I used to use. Derek and the Dominoes, Layla and other love songs. It was a double album. So you open it up and you grind the stuff. And then with a card, you like have it at an angle. So the seeds would roll down and the weed would stay. We have come such a long way. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And now it's like space age vape pens. Do you get paranoid? Um, It depends what's going on in my life. If I'm in a, like if I'm chilling on a beach in Thailand and I smoke a little weed, I feel fine. But if I've got a lot of shit going on and I've got deadlines and I got people, yeah, I got to do this, um, then I don't like to get high. Yeah. Uh, Joe Rogan articulates it well. Like his, he enjoys and embraces the paranoia cause he believes that it's like your ego, like trying to give mm. you a sign that maybe you've got too much going on. Joe Rogan's worried about having too much going on. 
Jesus well, Christ. He Fuck that guy. Right. Joe Rogan. He's living like nine lives at the same time, that yeah. dude. One day he'll realize it will make him happy. <laughs> well, every time I was just on his show like last week or something, and we were talking about he, he was funny. He was like, you're not a guy who really needs to work out a lot. And I was like, yeah, I'm a lazy asshole is what you're saying. <laughs> you're right. I got better shit to yeah. do. And he was talking about like, you know, yeah, like I'd spend, you know, five hours doing cardio. I'm like, five hours doing yeah. I mean, are you kidding Sounds me? Sounds like he's bragging. Well he, well, he needs it. You know, like it's what we're talking about, like personal chemistry. We're all different. Like he's one of these guys who like if he doesn't work out, he feels bad. Yeah, he was a hunter gatherer back in the day. And now that's his DNA has got to fulfill that somehow. He was out like, you know, spearing mammoths. I was right. back in the village banging his wife. That, that's how I <laughs> look at it. It was all mutually. Everybody's yeah, happy. Right. It's all win-win. No problem. <laughs> we all play our role, you know? Amen. Amen. All right, let's go look at the van. Thank, thank you guys for doing this. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so the book is Everything is Moving, available online. On Amazon, On yeah. Amazon, okay. Mm-hmm. Cassie Walker and John Walker has, uh, where do people find your music? music? Online, the internet. The internet. Yeah. It's available on the internet. Yeah, so just Instagram, go internet.com. Yeah. Uh, Backslash John Walker. <laughs> no H. John, J-O-N. Yeah, yeah John Walker, right. formerly of Panic at the disco or in the disco? Either way. Either way. <laughs> disco panic. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, where'd the name come from? Did you come up with the name? Or? No, it came from a, uh, a line in a song from another band. Like uh, their, their entire first album, the, all the song names are obscure lines from different works of art. Uh-huh. I guess it was the cool thing at the time. Oh, right. Yeah, like Steely Dan was named after the dildo in, was it William Burroughs, right. Naked Lunch. Everyone's got a story. Everyone's got a story, exactly. You got to. All right. Thanks for doing this, guys. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I got to be honest with you, just listening to it now, I kind of feel like uh, I talk too much. Um, it's funny you, when I load this up on the uh, the mixing software, I can see the different tracks, and I look at it and I see, oh shit, man, that, there's way too much activity in my track there. Uh, apologize for that. I I I think when I'm on tour talking about civilized to death, I tend to just I'm getting interviewed a lot, so maybe I uh, I overdo it by talking too much. I should chill out and let other people have their say um anyway i hope you enjoyed it despite the fact that i talk too much i'll try to uh, tone that down in future episodes i just recorded one yesterday with simon rex and um i don't think i talk too much in that one because i don't think simon would let me i think his energy is so overpowering that uh i'm kind of forced to sit back and let him run he's like a border collie among men he's great uh i think that'll probably be the next episode i upload i want to make it episode 400 and i think this if i'm not mistaken this is going to be 399 so uh hope you enjoyed that panic at the disco uh guitarist and i think he was a bass player as well john walker and his wife cassie walker and their book everything is moving i think it was called which is available 
on Amazon.com and other places. All right, I'm going to play you out, as I always do, with my mom talking about some of the things available in her garage that you can order through thatchrisryan.com and then the great, wonderful Carsey Blanton reminding us that we're all going to die one day. Ciao. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies, or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say to the ground.